Welcome back to American Scene, the show where we talk about movies with American in the title and what they have to say about American culture, identity, and values. My name is Ben Rosen. I'm Alan Austin. If you have anything you want to say about the show or anything we cover today, please connect with us on Twitter at American Scene underscore, on Instagram at American Scene Pod, or send us an email at AmericanScenePod at gmail.com. Today, we are making our case for American Violet. But we're going to do something a little different for this episode. Because this story puts issues of policing and criminal justice front and center, we're going to turn over the bulk of this episode to an interview with journalist Carrie Blakinger of The Marshall Project, who will provide some insight into many of the elements of the story. Uh, But first, let's tell you a little about the film. Yes, Ben. This is a 2008 film directed by Tim Disney, written by Bill Haney, starring Nicole Bahari, Tim Blake Nelson, Will Patton, Alfred Woodard, Exhibit, Anthony Mackie, and Charles S. Dutton. Based on true events, American Violet tells the story of Dee Roberts, a single mother in a small Texas town who struggles to clear her name after being wrongly accused and arrested for dealing drugs in a school zone. Yes, and important to note that because that does carry a much heavier penalty, uh, as they describe in the film. Alan, what did you think of the movie? I thought it was good. You know, whenever we're gearing up to watch something that's pretty heavy, you know, we have to be in a different mental space. And it was it was tough for me to get in this mental space just because of everything that's going on in real life right now. You know, we've got tragedy, we've got it's just such a heavy time in society right now. There's such injustices happening all around us. So to to see that we were doing American Violet next, albeit timely, it's unfortunate because I think this movie will be timely for the distant future. But I also had to escape reality by, you know, magnifying somewhat of what is our current reality. So it was tough for me to get in the headspace. But once I did, once I settled into this film, I really stuck with it. Like the D. Roberts character played by Nicole Bahari, I was rooting for her the entire time. What I liked about this film was that for the most part, it didn't set up any grand biases. It was almost like presenting the facts, which I really appreciated. Like, yes, we root for D. Roberts, and we root for the ACLU lawyer David Cohen, and, and we root for Sam Conroy, who's the good guy in, you know, in a group of good old boys. But you also make D a flawed character. Like, yes, she is wrongly accused of selling drugs, but that doesn't mean she's this saint on earth who's, you know, they're not forcing a narrative in that sense. This is a very real story with real people who have real problems, and this just happens to be one that she was falsely accused of. I I really enjoyed the world building. None of it felt forced. And while it is based on a true story, I know a lot of things were changed, names, places, you know. And for the most part, from what I read, it was pretty true to life. But I really like that this film did not paint Dee Roberts as this flawless, really great person who was wrongfully accused. I think the point that I took away from this movie is, it doesn't matter what someone's done in their past, You've got to take life case by case and nobody should be treated wrong and nobody should be treated unfairly because of bias, because of any sort of preconceived notion towards a person, a type of person. It should just be like life should be as fair as possible. And the unfortunate truth of this movie is racism exists, especially in Texas, according to this film, and there's underlying 
things within the government that are out of our control at the moment. And 2008, the fact that this government regime wanted to hit a quota of raids and arrests and the scam that they were running, the fact that they had the court-appointed lawyer in their pocket, just so much unfairness, uncertainty. So this film was informative, hopeful, yet I don't think it overstretched or manipulated us as audience members. Yeah, it's always interesting in a film like this, which which I would describe as capital I important, you know, a, a very issue-driven film where you're noticing where the writer may have sort of leaned on the scale a little bit, you know, made this character a little bit more charactery or, or cartoonishly evil, um, you know, made made things out to seem a little bit, I don't know, like, could, could it really be that bad? You know what I mean? And But it is. Yeah. You know, and so it wasn't hard. I mean... Had I seen this in 2008 when I was younger and didn't know as much um, about what was going on in the world, I might have that's what I might have walked away with. But, you know, after the week that we've had and after the year that we've had after the past, you know, decade of similar events, you can watch this film and be like, yeah, that is that is an accurate, a pretty accurate portrayal of of what goes on. Um, and, and we'll touch on some of this in the in, in the interview with Carrie, but it does. The story touches on every aspect of the criminal justice system. So you have police, first of all, taking the word of a confidential informant who is revealed to have been manipulated to into giving certain names. Then you have the raid, which is just like aggressively, they've got the copter and they've got all these different, they're just blasting into this entire apartment complex. And then you've got D, who's wrongly accused, but can't see the evidence against her the public defender is is urging her to take the plea uh which which we know is an issue of people taking pleas where you know had they gone to trial maybe they wouldn't have been found guilty but now they've got this thing on their record and the uphill battle that it takes to to fight this when you're faced with the entire power of the state you know or or the county um so so it really does hit every single beat along that way uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine what it's like to uh, experience this. Yeah, we really get an assembly line view of how everything goes down, just like you said. And the Will Patton character, who's, you know, kind of the inside man, so to speak, of the whole story, he even makes a comment, oh, did, uh, did they use the helicopter again in the raid? And, you know, it's stuff like that where we truly see where the abuse of funds happens you know what i mean and there's another key element in this story which is that in texas at the time you could arrest someone and charge them based on the word of one informant which is key to this story because we learn you know that there might have been a motive for her name to be on the list regardless of what her wrongdoings may or may not have been so it's very interesting to see how people get wrapped up and and one interesting thing was the sheer number of plea deals that are taken in this country. You know, it's something that I've never even really looked at or thought about, and it was quite eye-opening. Something over 90%, I believe, uh, of arrests lead in plea deals, which are meant to, you know, they're meant to scare people into doing what the powers that be want them to. And it's a very harsh film. It's a very cold film. But the acting, and I think the writing, are extremely strong in this film. 
that make you want yeah, to keep watching is my point. You, you know, it doesn't turn you off because of how heavy and serious it is. You're, you're hooked in because the world building and everything is created so well. Yeah, absolutely. You got a, a phenomenal cast who I, I think when it comes to issue driven movies, sometimes it's hard to make that stuff palatable in a narrative. Sometimes you do feel like you're being, it's more like edutainment than, than an actual story. And I, I didn't feel like that here. And the one thing that'll kind of knock it for, which is is really just more of a, a procedural thing, is Dee's character isn't around for the big victory. When the folks from the ACLU come out and they're all celebrating because they've they've got this victory that uh, you know the 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 DA is going to settle, Dee's not around. You know, so it does feel a little bit white savory, like Tim Blake Nelson had to come in in order to. Uh, in order to succeed on Dee's behalf, Will Patton had to be involved. His character had to be involved to succeed on Dee's behalf. So, you know, it's just a little strange. Like, if Dee's your protagonist, like, that she's not around for that big climactic moment is weird. And even that climactic moment happens behind closed doors. Like, he comes out of the room and says that they're going to settle. It's just a little, it just felt strange to me. I agree with half of what you said. I don't agree with the feeling the white saviory thing, because remember, this is based on a true story. So you want to keep the real elements in there. And I'm sure she would not have been in the room or even there at the court when something like this was going down. It doesn't make any sense for her to have been. I think that, you know, the Byron Hill character, who is the black lawyer in the ACLU, was helping out. He's kind of him and him and Dee come up with the plan to get the guy. So I think, you know, it's very clear that they are just as much the brains of the operation at the end of the day. I, I, I just think that, you know, I think they did good. I, I think if this is a true story and this is how it happened, I don't think they would have gotten the what they wished for had these real life people who happened to be white helped them out. And I think it's very clear that in Texas, they would not have won otherwise. So you know, if this was a fictional story and you're you're writing it now in 2021 where the white people come in and save the day, and there have been films recently that have felt that kind of backlash, I, I would see your point. But in this situation, when you think about it, I, I don't think it's that big a deal. I think, I think Dee and Byron are very much capable, and I think they helped seal the deal. I do agree with what you said in wanting to see the clearly racist judge who's in the pocket of the DA have to swallow his pride and say, this will never see the light of day and push towards settlement. That would have been the victory scene I would have liked to see. So I agree with you halfway on your remarks, but it's just like at the end of the day, and we've talked about this off air in preparation, what does this tale truly accomplish? Because here we are almost 15 years later and, you know, what's what's the takeaway? Yeah, it does feel a little strange at the end of the film to see everyone clapping in church and the music's very happy and she's watering the flower uh, in her apartment and it feels very uplifting. And yet we see in text that the DA got reelected and we know from Tim Blake Nelson's character that, you know, they could start up the drug task force tomorrow. Um, they they can start this whole process all over again. And so we know that there's still so much more work to be done. And yet the film does leave that. I think it leans more on the uplifting side of things 
which just felt strange to me after watching everything that had gone down in the film. Right. I, I see your point. I also think that it does try to, you know, humble the story. Tim Blake Nelson's character, by the way, wonderful performance by Tim Blake Nelson. He kind of sets the stage, like you said, that yes, while you may have won the battle, the war is far from over. And us as an audience, you know, we want to be happy for her. You know, we want to be like, there has been a grand victory, but we know there hasn't been. We know that there, the end is not near for the overall problem. While D goes forward, not having to deal with this, you know, the charges were even dropped halfway throughout the film. It became more of a, what's what, what I should get in response. Uh, she gets Beckett off her back, the DA, and it's all well and good in that regard. And I think it shows a little promise for that little tight-knit community that we stood up for ourselves, we didn't take it lying down, and we've, we fought for what we believed in. So in that sense, I do think it's an uplifting film about an individual's right to stand up for themselves and fight. But in the grand scheme of things, it's just a frustrating reminder of what really takes place in our society. So yes, I agree with you. It was a little too uplifting, but I do think there's hope within the confines of the films that we can latch onto. And of course, you know, American Violet, the symbolism of Violet, you know, it represents future imagination, dreams. I think by planting the Violet, watering it, She's keeping her dreams alive. She's keeping her future alive. And it is a dream of ours as a society to have racial equality. So I think that there's a nice positive message. I don't think, like you think, that it detracts from the overall feeling you should have going out. But I do think you should also keep keep notice that the war is far from over. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I've stumbled, but I think you get what I'm saying. No, that was actually great. Um, I, I think the question that... I have coming out of the movie is what does justice look like? Justice for D in this one particular instance is being compensated for having these, you know, dubious charges brought against her in the first place. But justice really is, you know, restructuring the entire system to, so that this never happens again. Right. Um, and, and so that no one else has to be lucky enough to be somebody that the ACLU takes on their case to be lucky enough that, uh, you know, there's, there's a tape of this guy being ridiculously racist that, that they can show in a deposition and know that they're going to, uh, that they're going to win. It, it's the story we're watching hinges on a couple lucky breaks that most people in America won't get. Right. I get your point. I get your point. I, I could see that, how, you know, it's almost like a Rube Goldberg thing, a, a series of fortunate events. I, I get that whole take. I think this film does do a good job at setting your expectations, though, because they do. If they ignored it altogether, if they just like ACLU hugged, D walks away with money and everyone, you know, is, is happy-go-lucky, that's a little misleading to your audience. But this film sets the groundwork that going forward – not much will change, but we stood up for ourselves this time and, and benefited from it. I think we should also note that while we keep saying this is a 2008 movie and we're, and we're almost 15 years on, the, the events of the story take place in 2000. Um, right, right before, around the presidential election. 
Yeah, yeah, and and I think the election takes place while while the story is taking place. It because the story takes place over over several months, but so to frame it as well, we're actually looking at the past twenty one years of uh, you know what what has changed in the past twenty one years. Um, I think the problem that I have with taking away something hopeful from the movie itself is recognizing it in the context of everything else that's gone on over the past twenty years. Right. Well, but that's where I think you need to recontextualize it to a story about D rather than a story about the country as a whole. If you can do that, you could walk around, you could walk out after feeling like I'm proud of this character. I'm proud of this woman who, against most advisors, stood up for herself and went forward on a mission she saw fit. It, it, the, the whole theme of this film is that America's systems are broken. I mean, they spend a lot of time in passing on the presidential election, the hanging chads, the voting booths in Florida. It's there as symbolism that from the tippy top, the systems in this country are broken. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, Using the context of this flawed election to mirror the flaws in the justice system. Absolutely. Uh, I was also going to mention that this does kind of have some things in common with the last movie that we did, American Outlaws, because this is an individual, obviously in Outlaws, it was a group of people, but an individual who decided to stand up against a corrupt system who was trying to take advantage of people they thought they they had leverage over. I, at some point, we're going to do an episode looking at the characters that have come up, the themes that have come up in a lot of our movies, and this is one that seems to have a lot of relevance. And it's so funny to me and ironic that the theme that American is standing up for yourself, fighting against evil, yet in all of these, it's the big business, it's the government, they're the big bad in America. So what a what wool being pulled over our eyes or however that expression goes, like, it's just, uh, uh, I do want to mention a couple things. Will Patton putting on his Coach Yost pants from Remember the Titans to be a guy who in the South is willing to stand up for what he believes is right, even even if all his friends disagree with him. He's really great. And kudos to Anthony Mackie for taking this tiny role, important role, but he was already established at the time. He had already had leading parts, so he clearly believed in the material and wanted to see the story told. So, you know, a lot of nice touches here and there throughout the film. Yeah, I think this would have been, for me, the earliest Anthony Mackie appearance that I recognize him in. What else was he in before this? Well, I recognize Anthony Mackie from 8 Mile, where he's one of the chief antagonists. So that was 2002. He was also, he had a pretty good part in Hollywood Homicide. He was in Manchurian Canada. He was the lead in Spike Lee's She Hate Me. He was also in Million Dollar Baby, Half Nelson. He had a lot of roles prior to this film. We Are Marshall. And this came out the same year as Hurt Locker, where he was one of the leads. So he was established in Hollywood at this point. So him taking this role and giving it his all was pretty nice to see. Yeah, that's right. I had forgotten about uh, Half Nelson. Half Nelson would have been the first appearance uh, of Anthony Mackie that I remember. Um, Eight Mile, I've only seen once, uh, so I didn't even remember him in it. Uh, And we should also shout out Lucinda Jenny showing up. I, I had no idea. I, I watched this movie a couple times and I didn't even recognize her. Uh, and so she joins our two-timer club as well, um, along with uh, Christian Bale, <laughs> of all people, showing up in two American movies for us. Um, so considering the weight of the issues the film addresses, as we've been talking about, we thought it'd be 
in poor taste to do our usual American moments. Uh, we already highlighted some of the actors that we like in the film. Um, and I think we both really recommend this film. Definitely. So let's give this film a rating and then let's hear from uh, from Carrie. Yeah, since we're not getting too jokey about it, I'm just going to give it a star rating out of respect, uh, you know, and out of four stars, I will give it three stars, which is a recommendation. You know, that is a thumbs up on the Ebert scale. I, I give it three out of four in the best way possible. Yeah, I give it three stars as well for everything that we've been talking about. It's a really solidly made film. The issues are still relevant. It's still important to watch this movie. It's important also because it was a true story or it's based on a true story. So to recognize uh, that this happened, that this continues to happen, um, definitely an important watch. I'm surprised actually that it didn't, that it hasn't gotten more notice. I think at the time, maybe people weren't paying as much attention. It wasn't, I mean, Twitter wasn't around, so you didn't have this conversation around events like we do now. So had this film come out several years later or more recently, I think it would have had a bigger effect. Um, so ho- hopefully, you know, and any of you listeners, please go go check it out and uh, bring this film back to uh, back to light. I completely agree. If this film came out within the last couple of years, it would have been nominated for awards, flat out. Just, it would have happened. It would have gotten way more recognition. Nicole Bahari would have been nominated, you know, for multiple awards, possibly even an Oscar. So, you know, this film is worth watching for sure. And with that, here is our interview with Kerry Blakinger of The Marshall Project. And now we welcome Kerry Blakinger to the podcast. She is a staff writer at The Marshall Project whose work has focused on prisons and prosecutors. She previously covered criminal justice for the Houston Chronicle, and her work has appeared in the Washington Post Magazine, Vice, the New York Daily News, and NBC News. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I I just want to jump right in. Uh, the story takes place in Texas and hinges on this... Uh, indictment for drugs, uh, drug possession within a, uh, within a school zone. Uh, and for my limited knowledge of state laws, I assume Texas has harsh sentencing for drug crimes and the consequences for a guilty plea are, are more severe than in other states. Is, is that true? Or, or can you shed some light on that? Well, I mean, I think it's a little more nuanced than that. Um, you know, Texas does have a lot of, uh, th- there's some crimes that to this day, uh, have a you can get a surprising amount of time for a relatively small amount of drugs. Um, you know, we have a class of felonies here called state jail felonies that are for you know less than a gram of hard drugs typically. Um, and those are you know th- those are cases that will send you to like actual prison. Um, so you can go to prison for very small amounts of drugs. But one thing that's interesting about Texas is that you end up in in many cases, being eligible for parole more quickly than you are in some other states we tend to see as more progressive. Um, In New York, for instance, you do much more of your time before you become eligible for parole than you do in Texas. Now, that doesn't mean you get out in Texas. Um, You know, you you could end up serving more time. Um, But, you know, it's not it's not an easy yes, no answer on that. I will say that Texas is, uh, you know, 
it's it's uneven as Texas moves towards not prosecuting low-level drug cases as much. Like we have some more liberal jurisdictions. I think that people are surprised to understand how liberal some of our big cities are, how you know progressive places like Houston and Austin are. And in some of these places, you're not seeing the sorts of low-level drug prosecutions that you used to. But you know, it's very uneven. And there are many more conservative rural places and also more conservative, you know, cities that are, you know, still prosecuting a lot of these low level cases, you know, some of which would not even necessarily be crimes or not, um, you know, certainly not prison eligible crimes in some other states. So I guess that's all a long way of saying it's it's complicated. That's not a, you know, yes, no answer. Right, right. Uh, something that the film also hinges on, the story in the film hinges on, is the raid that sets the story into motion. Uh, It's brought by the use of a single confidential informant. At the end of the film, it says that the law allowing the use of a single informant uh, to be sufficient for indictment was changed. Uh, but, But have you seen in real life where the use of informants continues to go wrong? Um, well, you know that what they what they mentioned there in the end about change in terms of how it's used for indictment is uh, that that's sort of the key. That's the key component here. Um, you know, you can still have a raid happen on the basis of a single confidential informant. And, uh, you know, and I can there was a, a case in 2019 in Houston where that went incredibly wrong um, because it turns out that, you know, it now appears that the police fabricated the informant and that person didn't really exist. Um, it was a case where they, the, you know, police got a tip that there was, you know, a called in tip that there was, you know, there were drugs and drug dealing occurring in this house. And that tip turns out to have been, you know, not even made in good faith, it appears, and, you know, inaccurate. And instead of actually, getting a real life informant to go see if they could buy drugs there. Um, The police are accused of allegedly having just fabricated this person claiming they bought drugs, that that this person bought drugs at this house on Harding Street. And, you know, they used that alleged buy as the basis to go get a search warrant for a raid. And they did a no-knock raid, crashed through the door and ended up killing both of the homeowners in a shootout. Um, so that's a case where the raid happened on the not only on the basis of a single informant, but a single informant that actually happened not to exist. What this is saying is different. Um, what that what that end title is saying is is different. Is that they're saying the law changed so that you can't use a single informant for indictment? Um, you know, which is obviously you, you have a lower standard of of uh, proof that you need to get the permission to go raid a house than you do to actually criminally charge someone in, in, in an indictment. Because in this case, remember the entire evidence, I think really just hinges on this one guy claiming that, you know, all of these people are drug dealers. In some of the cases, I think, I assume in some of those other defendants think they may have actually found drugs. I, I, for, I forget. I haven't, it's been a couple of weeks since I watched the movie. Um, but in a case like D they didn't find drugs on her. So it just comes down to one man's word. 
And that's what that end title is trying to say isn't possible. There's so many other parts of the criminal justice system where you would be surprised at the amount of things that can happen based on one person's word. Right. And and can you speak a little bit more on no-knock warrants and uh, the judges who grant these warrants? Yeah. So, uh, so no-knock warrants uh, became a big issue uh, in the past two years, you know, in spe- specifically in Houston, because of this case that I mentioned, the the Harding Street raid, um, you know, because this ended up with with two people dead. And, you know, in the course of as all this sort of unfolded, because it came out slowly over the course of months, um, exactly what the sort of wrongdoing of the police department was and, and you know, everything that went wrong along the way um, leading up to these two deaths. And of course, one of the big pieces of that is the no-knock raid itself and how little, you know, how little evidence you need to do a no-knock. Um, when uh, when police want to raid someplace, they, you know, they fill out a, a warrant, they go to a judge, but like any judge, like, so they can take their warrant asking to do a no-knock raid on a house that, you know, they think has guns and drugs, or they claim they think has guns and drugs, they can take their warrant to a magistrate that just does, um, you know, intake hearings, they can take it to a juvenile judge, they can take it to like a civil judge, like a family, like anyone who's any kind of judge, Um, not just the sorts of felony criminal judges that would actually handle the case if they find something in the raid. Um, So some of these judges just sort of routinely sign off on these warrants without really um, you know, without really anything in the way of oversight, like the, the police come in, they have their little affidavit saying, hey, we sent an informant into this house and this is what this house looks like. This is what the suspect looks like. These are the reasons that we think we need a no-knock raid as opposed to just a knock and enter. And typically the reasons they say that they need a no-knock are either because they think the person will flush the evidence before they, you know, get in through the door, which kind of, to me, begs the question as to why you need to raid the house if there's so little drugs that it can be flushed in one flush in a matter of seconds. Um, But the other thing is that they very commonly say that they believe there's weapons. And usually they will make that assertion based on saying that the informant who allegedly bought drugs there spotted guns in the corner. Um, One of the interesting things we found in the course of reporting on that whole Harding Street uh, raid situation was that most of the time when they said they suspected that there were guns and that's why they needed permission to do a no-knock, there were not actually guns when they got in, which I think speaks to the lack of oversight. Like they can just assert things. And this is essentially very low stakes for them because, you know, there's not a lot of oversight over the whole like warrant and raid process. Like there are at later parts of, um, and later parts of the criminal justice system. Yeah, low stakes. You mean for the for the police? For the obviously, police, yeah. Obviously, yeah, the other low- thing is, if they are, um, you know, if they are caught lying to get a warrant, um, you know, usually this only comes up after the fact. If someone's house is raided, they find enough stuff, and they go to charge the person, and then the, the lawyer comes and looks at the warrant for the raid, and it's like, hey, you didn't really have enough like justification to raid this or this shit wasn't true. Um, And, you know, the law is such now that all the judge does is 
look at the warrant and say, okay, but if I cross out these parts that aren't true, is the rest of it still enough that I would have granted a warrant? And if it is, then the case still proceeds. So even if there are inaccuracies, omissions, untruthful information in the warrant, there's very little consequences for the police in most situations. A very ends justify the means kind of uh, situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the film, Dee is assigned a public defender who essentially urges her to take the guilty plea because of some evidence that neither Dee nor her public defender even get to see. And, and, and please speak on uh, uh, on that element of it. But is this really how it would happen? So, you know, there's a few things in that scene to unpack there. Um, you know, and and one thing is the, the idea that uh, they would push for a, a push for a client to plead that early on a felony that's that serious because I think this is right around the point of indictment. This is not after like months of negotiations. When you're talking about pleading on a felony that serious, um, typically that that takes some time. That's not like the first time you meet with your lawyer and the prosecutor, you're you're just being offered, you know, this this plea to something that you're not guilty for. I mean I'm sure that there are outliers. I'm sure that there are cases where, you know, there's a, a plea on a felony on the table uh, on the very first, you know, in, in the very first meeting. But, um, you know, the idea that, that that sort of menacing statement that the prosecutor makes about like, well, if you'd seen what I'd seen, you know, that gets at something really interesting. Um, the whole like grand jury and indictment process. And, you know, when when someone is, indicted it's done through usually through a grand jury um which is a group of people that you know they come they listen to the existing evidence and determine whether it's enough to move forward with charges like whether it's just enough to merit moving towards a trial I'm not saying the person's guilty or innocent they're just saying like is there enough to keep moving forward and the way this process works is it's usually led by a prosecutor but there's the defendant doesn't know and there's no defense lawyer there so it's just basically, you know, a jury and a prosecutor and some witnesses. And um, it's secret. You don't know what's said in grand jury, um, except in some rare circumstances where a judge might later unseal it or it might get leaked. Or, you know, in one case, uh, you know, I there's one case I know where it was just accidentally put in the clerk's public file and it wasn't supposed to be. Um, but, you know, typically grand juries are secret. So the idea that the prosecutor would have evidence that the defense wouldn't have. Um, that could certainly be true at that point. Um, and, you know, it's actually also a longer, a, a bigger problem in criminal justice. This idea that prosecutors do not necessarily turn over the evidence that they need to. There are legal requirements about turning over evidence at trial. And in some states, there's there's other um, disclosure requirements earlier on in cases, but you know it's the, there's a Supreme Court decision from I think the '60s called Brady versus Maryland, where the court found that you know it's a prosecutor's duty to disclose what's now known as Brady material, which is anything that would tend to make the defendant look innocent, like any sort of exculpatory type evidence, anything favorable the prosecutor is supposed to turn over. But uh, Brady violations happen all the time. And, you know, so routinely, I just feel like I'm writing about it all the time. Um, and that sort of is, that's the sort of thing that 
um, has to come out at trial. But earlier on in the case, the prosecutor could very well be making the sort of comment that, you know, oh, if you knew what I knew. Um, I just don't think this sort of constricted timeline where it's like, you know, they're pressuring them to plead based on things they haven't seen on a first appearance like that. That seems unusual. Sure. Well, the story has to take place within an hour and 40 minutes, you know, right. it's just like just like Law and Order. Every episode begins and ends with, uh, uh, you know, within 60 minutes. So. Right. Um, but uh, but but that's that's very interesting. And then, uh, you know, we had spoken before we started recording about um, the whole public defender uh, process and, and how, who these people are and how that works. Uh, can you can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, they uh, in the in this Film, they, there's at least one, but I think there's a few references to this sort of idea of public defenders being um, bad lawyers or, you know, just sort of the, the cheap lawyer that the state appoints you. And I, I think that's a real problematic misconception about public defenders. Um, there's a few different ways of assigning attorneys to people who can't afford them. And, you know, that's called indigent defense. Um the whole process of providing attorneys to people who can't afford them. And, you know, the most common model in Texas is an appointment system where um, the judge on, you know, picks from a list of qualified attorneys uh, who are private attorneys and they might represent, they might represent, you know, people for money, but then they also get assigned cases by the court and, you know, they get paid by the county, usually by the hour, for doing these cases. Um, that is a system that has been very problematic in a number of counties, um, sort of famously in, in Harris County where Houston is, which is not where this story takes place, but it is the biggest county here in Texas. Um, there's been an ongoing problem with the, the judges uh, tend to, you know, had, have for years leaned towards appointing those attorneys who they know well, who they're friends with, who are their big campaign donors, to more cases. So you end up with a situation where sometimes there are attorneys who have these ridiculous caseloads where they're handling more cases than they can manage and they're just not doing them well and they're doing it to get paid. Um, and that is the sort of situation that can lead to the subpar defense that they're hinting at when they talk about public defenders. But that situation is not called a public defender. That's, that's you know, that's appointed counsel. A public defender is an office that is a county office that is all lawyers who are just their whole day job all day every day is taking on these kinds of cases. So they have a salary. They don't get paid by the hour or by the case. They It's a county office and there's whatever, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 lawyers, just like a prosecutor's office, except these are defense lawyers. And that is not what that county had at that time in Texas. So they call it a public defender. But when this story actually happened, there was not a public defender's office in that county. And there's very few public defender's offices in, in Texas at all, actually. Um, most counties aren't really big enough to support them. So a lot of them are using these, you know, these assigned council mechanisms, which are, um, you know, which can be deeply problematic. Got it. Yeah. And maybe that explains why the character in the film was pushing for uh, the police so early because, you know, maybe he was buddies with the the judge or something. Obviously, the film doesn't get into that, but 
No, but I think it does sort of hint at it. I feel like you definitely see hints of this like sort of idea of like, you know, good old boys, right? He seems like a good old boy, right? Certainly, certainly. Uh, I want to circle back to uh, the plea itself. Um, there, there are a couple of things, a couple of things from the film regarding this. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson's character, the the uh, attorney with the ACLU, um, says ninety five percent of all cases are settled by plea bargains. Um, and there's an exchange uh, where where he says, "All you have to do is accuse me, and I can be indicted and arrested, and I'm told to take the plea or else." Um, and after the charges are dropped, a reporter asks. What about the people who already pled guilty? And the DA responds, what about them? They pled guilty. Um, so I'd love to just get your take on on plea bargains, you know, you know, as a concept. Is this a problem that that uh, that 95 percent of cases, as they say in the film, are settled by plea bargains? Um, so I, I so first I should say, I think that pretty much all of that scenario that you just described is is accurate. Like, I don't think that's being dramatized. Like pretty much everything you're saying there is really how our criminal justice system works. Um, and so in terms of 95, I think it might, yeah, I, it's around there. I don't know if it's 95, 96, but yes. I mean, that's a, you know, depending on the state or, you know, municipality, uh, the numbers can vary. But yeah, by and large, 95 plus percent of cases are resolved by plea bargains. And part of this is because there are just so many cases like our criminal justice system would ground to a grind to a halt if every single case went to trial um and you know trials are you know long and stressful and you have this case hanging over your head for a long time i mean there's there's you know reasons that you might not want to go to trial but um you know the i understand the value of a plea bargain and when i was arrested um you know i i, I was arrested for a drug crime in New York in almost, I guess, more than 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, and I, I took a plea bargain, but, you know, I mean, I, I knew I was guilty, so that's different. <laughs> um, but, you know, the idea that the vast majority of people don't really get their day in court and are resolving these cases through plea bargains, I mean, I think it's sort of contrary to our basic thoughts about how justice should work. Um, but I completely understand the role of plea bargains in our current criminal justice system when it exists on this scale and when things move at the speed they do. Like it's not going to function any other way. And I get that. It does create a really problematic incentive for people to plead to charges that aren't really the charge they're guilty of or that are just things they're not guilty of at all because of the trial penalty. So I guess it's more that the the plea bargain is not inherently problematic. It's the fact that if you go to trial, you will get more time. That's what's problematic. Right, right. It, in, in a sense, it's it's a tool and the way in which it, it, it may be used uh, may, be, may be of issue more than the concept right. itself. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I should distinguish that it's the trial penalty more than the plea bargain that is the issue. Got it. Got it. Understood. Um, you mentioned uh, the progressiveness of some areas of Texas. And I think the most important question now, we're 21 years on from uh, 20 or 21 years on from the events of the film, uh, 13 or so years on, almost exactly 13 years on from the release of this film. um, Is the system changing? Uh, As we mentioned, the film ends with with, 
uh, the statement that Texas had changed a law. The film ends with, I think, a mix of hope and uncertainty because they say the DA got uh, got reelected. So is the system changing? Are there areas where you see things getting better? I mean, sure, there's there's some things that change and, you know, there's some things that are, are, are not changing. I mean, there, there's still like shockingly regressive things going on here in Texas, but you know, when you just look at some of the most basic metrics of it, um, you know, our overall statewide jail population is smaller than it used to be. Our prison population is now significantly smaller. I mean, part of that's because of COVID there's uh, a little under 120,000 people in, in Texas prisons right now. And, when I started reporting on them, which is probably 2016, 2017, there was like 150,000. Um, so just the, the the scope of the number of people we've incarcerated is going down. Um, we are executing fewer people than we used to. There was uh, one year around 2000 where we executed like 40, 40 some people in one year. And I think it ended up being three last year. Um, so you know, and, and part of that was because of COVID, but the numbers had been gone de- going down significantly, like for years. Um, and, you know, death row has, is smaller than, than it used to be. We see fewer new death sentences. We, you know, there are still counties that are sending, you know, new prisoners to death row, but fewer than there used to be. And I know that's a very grim way to measure things, but, you know, in a state like Texas, that's been so attached to capital punishment. I, I do think it's, a telling shift. Um, you know, I, I also think another telling shift is some of the, uh, you know, some of the reforms that, you, you know, that Republicans have embraced. Um, you know, one thing that's again on the table, this legislative session, which our legislative session here in Texas is ongoing right now, it's once every two years, you know, the joke being that we don't want them to meet more than that and fuck things up more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I think that's fair. <laughs> but, um, but you know, so this session, once again, they are considering something that would, um, you know, limit the law of parties, which is um, a law here that, like, if you're the getaway driver, you can be sent to death row along with the actual shooter. Um, so if you and, you know, some friends go, you're young and dumb and you're 18 and you go rob a convenience store and you don't know that your friend's going to go in and shoot the clerk you can still end up on death row. And that does happen. There are people, you know, many of them that have been on death row in those circumstances. And currently there's a Republican um, legislator who is, uh, you know, who's spearheading the bill to, to get rid of that. Um, and obviously that's one very small niche, but I, I think this is something we would not have seen 20 years ago. We'd not have seen some of the, uh, some of the bipartisan support on, certain specific um, criminal justice issues. I mean, there's still some incredibly troubling things on the table this session, aside from, I think we've gotten a lot of publicity here for some, you know, voter suppression uh, proposals. Um, But in terms of criminal justice, uh, there's also been some extremely troubling proposals in terms of bail reform. Um, They would make it harder for poor people to get out uh, if they don't have money for bail. Um, and this has been a really contentious issue here. Uh, it's been a contentious issue in many states, obviously, but it's, it's been a contentious issue in Texas because um, Harris County got sued for um, unconstitutional bail practices that were essentially amounting to like a 
you know, debtor's prison or poor people's prison, because you could be accused of one crime and be able to pay your way out if you're rich and same crime, same circumstances, not able to pay your way out when you're poor. Um, so that sort of propelled bail reform to being a big issue this session. And, you know, the governor is championing some legislation that is, uh, you know, pretty regressive in terms of criminal justice. So, you know, we see some progress in some places and we see some things that would be not progress in other places. Um, you know, I am not generally an optimist. I am not generally the person that says that, you know, the moral arc of the universe like swings towards justice or I, I might be fucking that quote up, but you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, I do think when you look at Texas criminal justice over, you know, the past couple decades, you know, we see a progressive shift that sort of mirrors what you see in the rest of the country. It's just slower here. Hmm. And some of the things that were shown in the film, some things like, uh, obviously, uh, the concept of drug task forces or uh, how a small town like this could afford a helicopter uh, or, you know, to, to go in at the scale that they do on this raid are, are things like that still still happening yeah so um the the helicopter i mean there's a few ways that a small town like that um could get a helicopter one of the um one, one of the notorious ways has been this um 1033 military program where the federal government gives municipalities um you know small like small municipalities they give them any sort of leftover equipment so that can be computers that can be refrigerators that can be you know i think there was a slushing machine in one case um you know that can be uh guns it can be ammo that can be uh helicopters and uh humvees tanks well actually i think technically not tanks um <laughs> although i will say i did go go sitting one for a story and it looked like something you would commonly describe as a tank. <laughs> um, but so the, the federal government will give away these things and, you know, there are safeguards like there, you know, there's some accountability process to make sure that, you know, you're not like selling the guns on the black market or something. I mean, you do have to account for this shit, but that got a lot of publicity after Ferguson when we were seeing, you know, tanks rolling through the streets of these protests. Um, that was sort of when the 1033 program came under a lot of scrutiny. But, you know, it's been in place for many years and it's been a key mechanism for militarizing the police. So it's not impossible that a, you know, that a small town, a small municipality like this would have its own helicopter. Many would not find it worthwhile because of the, you know, the maintenance costs, the training costs, you know, the need to put it somewhere and fuel it like helicopters are not cheap, um, but they would also be able to get them from task forces. You know, if you have a cooperative task for force with the feds or something, you know, you can use their helicopter and plenty of task forces still exist. Um, you know, they a lot of them are sort of more general, like major offenders task, task forces or something um, where they're just trying to go after sort of big crimes in general. Um, but yeah, I mean, task forces are still a huge part of law enforcement. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I'll tell you, I spent, uh, almost 10 years in, in Los Angeles and I would 
definitely be okay if there were fewer helicopters out there. <laughs> well, you mentioned, you said you're not uh, an optimist, but is there anything you're personally um, you're personally invested in or, or places where you'd like to see the conversation moving forward in, in, in a more um, progressive direction? Yeah, so, you know, the thing I think about a lot is, is I, I mostly cover prisons. Um, I've, I've obviously done some policing and, and prosecutor and courts coverage, but the, you know, bulk of my, what I cover is prisons. And I feel like so much of the conversation about criminal justice and criminal justice reform tends to focus on how people get into the system. It tends to focus on, you know, policing, on arrests, on, you know, reducing the length of sentences, on making people eligible for parole sooner. Um, you know, these are all really valuable things. but there will still be, for our foreseeable future, people in prison. Um, you know, even if you're an abolitionist, like everyone can understand there are people in prison and they're not getting out tomorrow. And our system is going to continue sending people there. Even if we reduce those numbers, there's still going to be people in prison. And, you know, I, I think it's really important to think more about prison conditions, which are, I think, shockingly worse than people commonly understand. Um, you know, I've, I, I have done a lot of reporting on how bad these conditions are. You know, it's pretty common that, you know, guys will, will not be able to get fed on a regular basis. So they'll be starting fires on their dorms to try to get sergeants to come and um, feed them. The food that I've been sent pictures of is, you know, clearly insufficient. And I, I don't know how these people aren't, aren't getting scurvy. Um, one guy sent me a meal of like, it's a hot dog and a tortilla and a raw uncooked whole potato. And that was dinner. And that's not how we should be treating people. It's, you know, I just don't think it's, I don't think it speaks well to us as a society if we say that's okay for one, but it's also not good in terms of rehabilitating people because the vast majority of people in prisons will get out someday. And we don't want to, you know, have to sort of lock them away in, you know, long-term solitary confinement in, you know, cells with no light and peeling paint and be feeding them this kind of food and, you know, denying them basic medical care um, in many, you know, in, in several states, if you uh, don't, if, if you lose your teeth, you may or may not be able to get dentures in Texas, they will blend your food up and put it in a uh, puree and put it in the cup and give it to you instead of giving you dentures. And, you know, there, I can go on and on with these sorts of horror stories about medical care and basic conditions. And to be clear, yes, some prisons are better. Some jails are better. It's not all like this, but um, broadly, there are many places where this is the norm, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, post-pandemic. And, you know, the, the tricky thing about this is that solving those problems requires money. So for people who oppose prisons and want to abolish them, in the interim, there's still the issue to grapple with of, you know, do you spend more money on them for now to improve the conditions? And if you don't, then what does that mean for the mental state of the people inside once they come out? So I think that's sort of the, the one piece of the criminal justice system that I just think is not spoken about enough and should be. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely using whatever money we are providing to prisons in the best way possible is part of that conversation. Well, those are all the questions that I had for you. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll wrap up our conversation. Uh, Carrie, 
where can people find more of your writing if, if they want to uh, see more of what you report on? Well, um, you can check me out at The Marshall Project, which is themarshallproject.org, um, or you can follow me on Twitter, um, K-E-R-I-B-L-A. Wonderful. Please follow along and, and stay tuned to the conversation on police and, uh, and, and prisons. Thanks so much again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good talking. And that is a wrap on this special episode of American Scene, discussing the film American Violet. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave a positive review. You can give us your unfiltered opinion on Twitter at American Scene underscore. And if you'd like to follow either of your patriotic co-hosts, I'm Ben Rosen on Twitter at NotThatBenRosen. I'm Alan Austin at Alan underscore Austin underscore. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.